This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. One of the most common questions we get asked is, how should I train if I only have limited time available each week? We know the perfect training program would probably mean you train 15 to 20 hours a week, but for most age groupers, this just isn't realistic. And for many of you out there, you only have as little as six or seven hours of training time available. So what should you do? Should you just give up on your goals because you can't compete with how much everyone else trains? Absolutely not. There's always ways to make it work, and we're going to identify today the key things you can do. As always, please remember our unwritten rule. If you enjoy our podcasts and find them helpful, the best thing you can do for us is share the podcast on your social media or to an endurance friend who you think might like it. And of course, this episode is brought to you by our proud sponsor, Giant Australia. For all your bike, training and racing needs, ride life, ride Giant. Dad, welcome back to another episode. Let's start with our normal first segment, what are you grateful for? Thanks, George. This is going to be a good one. Um, time efficient training, isn't it? And I think one of the things that uh, I'm most grateful for, and I probably have mentioned it a few times in the 200 or so episodes that we've done, but I'm I'm actually grateful to, to find uh, your brother Matt's uh, first boy, Archie. He's just started to walk after a, a year on this earth. But it's always amazing to me that how do, how do infants with no muscle development or co- coordination have the ability to crawl first and then stand, stand up? And, and they've got absolutely no muscle development at all. And how do they get there? everything to function in sync that's the thing that that really blows my mind when i watch the the development of of kids in in, in one year two years three years and as a two or three year old they can run with really good form and yet they don't have any developed um quads calves hamstrings glutes um they're, they're just super coordinated and they get everything to work well and as you know uh dr jordan moncrief is a real advocate of uh doing a lot of uh functional training based on what kids development is over their first three or four years and and it just reminds me all the time of when I see um, you know your other brother Liam's uh, son Banks he's about two or three months away from walking but he's standing up now and and they've both got different um, um, uh, body shapes uh, Archie's quite lean and Banks is quite well built and so it's interesting to see how they go about learning to, to use their um, what they've got as quickly as they can. So I, I love the fact that this is where a lot of the functional training sessions, and it's quite uh, timely that, you know, a lot of the questions we get asked about doing stuff away from your chosen sport, how is it going to help me? And if you, if you just look at the way kids develop and how they get to use how they make or allow their muscles to to work together to, to enable them to crawl and to stand and to run, then these are the things we should be going back to the basics for to to get ourselves strong again with our joints and muscles and tendons and ligaments and 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 that would be the you know the most simplest thing you could do and and I and I'm grateful for watching this because it keeps reminding me of how important this side of because you know you look at swimmers who I've seen so many times where a really lean 12 or 13 year old girl can just motor past some gym junkie guy who's built like a tank, but just can't swim. Whereas the the lean girl's got the 
you know, the technique and, and her, her coordination down pat. And, and she looks graceful in the water. I and mean, this guy's just monstering the water and not getting anywhere. Um, and they're examples of, you know, it's not all about um, big muscles. Um, it's all about how, you, how they work together. Yeah, when you do when we do some of the strength and conditioning work from Dr. Jordan Moncrief, as you said, a lot of the positions are really basic. And you, when you look at infants and kids, uh, a lot of the positions he's trying to get you to sit in and work from are just really basic seated positions on the ground. And it's just impossible as an adult. You just the amount of sitting that we do and um, the amount of backwards work we do against our bodies um, works against us and make those exercises really difficult. But when you look at these kids and they just they do them with ease and they they move with pure functionality it's 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 great to watch and that's why we do love that dns movement uh, my gratitude is uh, on the family theme as well um i think i could make mum my gratitude every single week um, i don't know if i have actually but uh gra- grateful for mum and um, she does so much work um you know for our family some so much spend so much selfless time um doing everything for us and our family and she's done it our whole life and so very grateful for it and really keeps things, really keeps this traveler train running behind the scenes, I would say. So <laughs> shout out to mum uh, for my gratitude this week. Awesome. Before, before we get into the uh, main topic of the podcast, uh, what's caught our attention at the moment is just some some really big power meter mistakes that we just wanted to mention that we're seeing pop up uh, in a range of athletes, beginners, people you know, first getting used to their power meters, right through to people that have been using it for a while and still making these critical errors. So we just wanted to point out some things. If you're using a power meter, make sure you're doing these things right. And the first one is, uh, are you using are you using the right bike and the right power meter that you're going to use on race day, or are you using the wrong bike in training? Yeah, the luxury, um, and it is a luxury because a lot of people now have more than one bike, and and so if you're not in that category, you won't be making this mistake because you only have one bike, so you're not going to go down this rabbit hole. But but for most people, they might have a time trial bike and they might have a road bike, and for other people now, it could also be a shed full of gravel bike and mountain bikes. And you could potentially, as long as well as your smart trainer, have up to five different power meters in in your possession um, uh, when you're when you decide to go for a training session on a bike. And and I think the thing that we need to really establish from the outset is what event are you training for, and that will dictate what bike you're going to predominantly use. You you can use all the bikes: the gravel, the mountain bike, the town trial bike, and the road bike. I'm happy for that to happen. I'm happy for you to be indoors and use your smart trainer power meter. But but we, we need to understand at the end of the day, the race that we've entered, that's the bike that we need to spend most of the time on. And if that happens to be um, a criterium or a time trial or a triathlon or a road race or a mountain climbing stage as a mountain biker or a gravel endurance ride, you need to spend the most time on the bike that you're going to ride on that day. And that's not to say you can't use those other bikes, but we want to we want to make sure that's the first thing you're thinking about. So the key sessions, they're the times to be using that particular bike, and the other sessions such as recovery or or just you know coffee rides or or even rides with your mates where they're all on a particular bike that's not the sport you're doing, then join in with that. Um, if you're doing a base phase uh, at the start of the season and you're a triathlete doing a, you know a half Ironman which has got a 90k time trial in it but you know we've asked you to do some strength work it's okay to ride your road bike in the hills for those for those sessions it's okay um, you know I'd prefer you still got used to riding your time trial bike in the hills um, but but it is okay to do that and and they're things that are they're not mistakes they're they're just identifying um, what is important and what's not important 
And I think, I think that would be the first thing that, that, uh, that people should start to think about and start to form when, what bike am I going to ride and, and why and, and when is it most useful. The follow-on from that is um, practicing your position as well. And this is more applicable to the time trial position on, on the time trial bike, but it doesn't include everything because if you're going to be doing a, a hill sort of challenge, then you need to get practice what position you've got to be riding up the hill, even on your road bike and practice riding in the hills because a lot of people tend to get to the hills and, and then realize that their back's really sore from a certain position or they need to practice standing up for periods, that kind of thing. But uh, specifically the, the time trial position, I was on a ride uh, last week and happened to just be behind a guy who was on the time trial bike practicing his time trial position and we we're on a very undulating circuit and uh, on the uphills I noticed he was getting to the TT position and then over the crest and down the hill he was sitting up and pulling up and it's you can never um, judge what someone's doing because you have no idea what their session is or what the goal is you know uh, for that session but I would assume that if you're on the TT bike and you're trying to practice that, you want to spend as much time in that as possible and you want to spend at least time outside of the, the TT position and with the hands on the sides and especially over that crest and down where you're going to get more speed and that's where you really want to practice it and it's, it's good to be in the, in the uphill. But he was really, we were hitting some steep segments and he was staying in that TT position, which is fine. Um, but yeah, unless you're going around a sharp corner and you're not so confident um, uh, or it's a, it's a really steep downhill um, for a safety measure, um, then you can pull up. But uh, yeah, really practicing as much time as possible in that position because that's what you want to achieve on race day and that's the most aero position to be in. Yeah, so just following on that top, that point, um, you know, I'm sort of surprised sometimes when I'm saying to people, how did it feel in that session that you just com- completed? Um, you know, you're comfortable in the TT position. Oh, and sometimes the answer comes back as, I didn't, I didn't do that in the TT position. I just set up because I can push more power in that position. Mm. And, and that, that to me is a, a mistake. You know, you need to be doing the, the right power in the position you're going to try and do it on race day because you'll get to race day and, and say you've been trying to aim at 200 watts in those training sessions and come race day and you've been doing it sitting up and come race day when you're in the TT position because you're trying to be as aerodynamic and fast as possible, you can't get anywhere near 200 watts and you're then questioning what's wrong with me and and you'll start to you know change your race strategy and it's purely because you've actually been training in the wrong position and and that is such an important point if you are a time trialist in a triathlon you need to be training in the time trial position in those specific training sessions and the minute you're doing any of those efforts out of that position that's actually giving you an inflated power number uh, that is not possible to do in the TT position. So you need to test yourself in the TT position. Then you need to train in that same position. And so that is one of the things that I think people are, are really getting wrong. And not only not only in the position, but but they're actually training, uh, doing an FTP test sometimes on the wrong bike and then going to do some other sessions uh, based on uh, out, outdoor training, based on the, the same power number but because it's on a different bike they can't match those numbers because guess what the position's different because of the geometry of the frame between a road bike and a time trial bike and the power meter is most definitely probably not going to read the same so you're going to have different values for two different power meters you know i've got four power meters in this in this room where i'm sitting and not one of them reads the same and Mm. that includes a smart trainer like i know on my time trial bike my time trial bike power meter reads 10 watts higher than my smart trainer does. And so if, if I trained using the smart trainer's power meter and then went to a race with those numbers, 
then I would be riding power too low in that race because it's 10 watts lower. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I, I would actually not, I would be losing, I'd ride poorly. And if, you know, in your example, your smart trainer reads higher. So, so you, you'll, you'll do the opposite thing that's going to happen. You're going to ride the wrong power in, a, in the other direction, which is going to make, you know, your race so much harder. Yeah, the, our general rule is we just don't use the smart trainer's power, just ever. You know, every training session where you connect to the smart trainer, if that's if you're doing an indoor session, um, but you select your actual power meter, you don't select the, the smart trainer's power because it's just it's just not really useful because you're never going to use it outdoors or race day. So it's just a kind of blanket rule for us. And yeah, so we, just, we want to keep pointing out these mistakes just to make sure that if you are using a power meter, which we hope you are, um, you're just not making any of these because you might be doing six out of seven of these right, but there's, there's one thing you're doing wrong and that's actually affecting potentially performance on race day. And yeah, we just highlighted if, if you're going to use a smart trainer indoors, not using the, the power meter on the smart trainer, but using your own power meter instead. And the other one is understanding that um, on the same bike and the same power meter, you could still have different numbers depending on if you've done a hill climb FTP or a flat course FTP or an undulating and you, they're not all not equal. So you can't really use your hill number um, versus your flat number. And that is a really hard concept to grasp. And you would think that doesn't make sense. The power is me and what I'm pushing. It's the same bike. Why is that incorrect? Yeah, it's a beauty because you could have an indoor uh, power FTP. You could have an outdoor uh, on the flat power FTP and you could have a hill climbing. and All te- on the same power meter on the same bike in the same That's position. Right. Yeah. And you could do that, you know, if you were not listening to our advice, you could have them all on three different power meters. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and therefore, you would be that confused when you come to do your next training session. So why would we have an FTP for hill climb? Um, why would we have one for flat outdoor? Why would we have one for indoor? Because we want to train very accurately. And if we're deciding that the next training block, it's in the middle of winter and it's snowing outside, and we can't go outside to do any training sessions, we're going to rely on our indoor FTP. And that could be five watts lower than your outdoor flat FTP and 15 watts lower than your hill climbing FTP. So we're going we're gonna to train with the number that we've tested on. And if you come into summer like we are in the Southern Hemisphere and you're not going to use the indoor trainer at all, then we want to use our outdoor flat FTP for our outdoor training sessions that we might be doing on the courses around our house or on a velodrome or whatever the the outdoor sessions we're going to use. And then if we're going to do some hill uh, training uh, programs like there are going on uh, in March this year in uh, Victoria, there's a a huge race called Three Peaks. And if if you are using your flat FTP power number for your hill climbing, you would definitely be riding too low because you can ride probably 5% higher against the gradient of a hill. And that's the key point. Why are the numbers different? Because you're not generating the power on a, on a climb. The hill is pushing against you. So it's easier to push against the resistance. When you're on the flat, you have to generate your power yourself because there is no resistance you know, from the gradient. Um, there might be some wind resistance, which will help uh, you to push against um, to give you some more power. But, you know, generally we want to do out and back. So we're going to have tailwind and headwind. So that'll equal itself out. So the power from a hill climbing test should be hot the highest because the gradient is allowing you to, to push against it. The power from the flat outdoors should be next highest and the power from indoor um, that is a really difficult thing because you are not moving around the bike as much as you can outdoor. You're stuck in one spot. 
Um, and so therefore, sometimes it's harder to generate more power indoor. Um, there are exceptions to that, but that's the mm-hmm. general consensus that we've had from the athletes that we've coached. Absolutely. Last few uh, in terms of power meter mistakes, uh, making sure that all your settings are updated correctly. So whether you're you know, reading your power on your watch or your head unit uh, on Zwift or on Training Peaks, just making sure that your FTP settings are updated because you might load a session um, onto Zwift, but when you start the session, if you haven't got the right FTP set, then it's going to spit out different numbers than what you should be training to. And um, especially if you're, you're changing bikes, potentially changing power meters between sessions, you've really got to make sure that before the session, you keep updating that. Um, if you're looking on Training Peaks, for example, then making sure that you, you've set that FTP correctly in your settings so it's giving you the right data to look at. The same thing if you're loading the session onto your Garmin or your head unit and watch. That's just a really important point to keep on top of because you could potentially get to a session, forget to change it, and then you'll just be, you know, you we should, we would assume this wouldn't happen because I personally just, you know, I'm really, really well on top of what kind of numbers I'm going to push for this session. I'm really aware of it. And I can't imagine a situation where we personally just would look at numbers and not see that they're incorrect. But we do understand that, when you're new to power and you're not used to seeing the numbers and you kind of have no idea what your ability is, you'll just be looking at numbers and have no idea what they mean. So you could easily just get look at the numbers, not even know that they're wrong um, and do do an entirely wrong session. Well, generally the, the format should be you do an FTP test and Training Peaks um, can be, have a button where you can automatically let Training Peaks adjust it. We don't recommend you do that. We recommend that you manually adjust your FTP every time um, because for some reason, if your power meter overreads or underreads, uh, if you've selected the automatic on training pegs, it will put a number that's not real. And, you know, some training sessions, people are getting 2,000 watts of max power. Well, that's not a real outcome. Um, that's that's something gone wrong with the power meter. So that's an example of, uh, you know, not taking control yourself. So you should manually update your FTP only when you know you've improved. And, you know, the scenario is if you're indoors and you open up Zwift, Zwift will automatically change it. Um, from a previous best FTP Um, and you have no control over that so you have to actually manually change it back if it's not a real number so you could actually have an FTP number on your training peak session and then you're looking at the Zwift screen and that's set to a different number so all of a sudden in the one training session you've got two different power meters at play um, with power FTPs set differently and that's a disaster waiting to happen it's so confusing sounds really pedantic but you know, the consequences are really frustrating because if you don't do it properly, the session's either going to be way too hard and you're going to fail it and feel like crap and, and wonder what's wrong with me or it's going to be far too easy and you've just kind of wasted an hour on the trainer where you haven't really gotten much out of it and especially when today's topic is, you know, how to make sure that every hour counts. If you've only got six or seven hours, you can't afford to waste an hour training session where you didn't get the most out of your body if that was a hard session. Spot on. And look, it doesn't take much to just make sure the Swift FTP is set the same. You go into settings and then, you know, if you're Garmin or if that's what you're using, that's also got an FTP. So if you're running your training peak session through your Garmin, you're running it through Zwift, you know, and your training peak session, there's three different uh, settings that you need to be on top of. Um, and, and, you know, that is crucial to getting the most out of uh, every training session you're doing. Last couple, if you do update your power meter, if you get a new one, if you upgrade, uh, be really careful not to compare to your old one because it could read similar, it could read totally different. And it, it really sucks sometimes if you get a new one and it reads 30 watts lower than your old one because it feels like a bit of an ego boost. But I mean, that doesn't happen too often, but it has definitely happened to some athletes of ours. Uh, and you just have to cop that. And you just got to really keep that in mind, especially be careful, you know, six months down the track. 
um, that you're not comparing apples with oranges and you're not comparing the data now from six months ago off a different power meter. You know, that's where recording your own data really consistently and not just recording your power, but what power to create it to what speed. And that's where comparing um, data from six months ago could be really valuable. You could go one step further, Jordan, in your um, data spreadsheet, just make a note at the end of each of those testing periods. Um, this was my Quark. This was my mm-hmm. Favero Asayamo. This was mm-hmm. my um, Garmin power, you know, whatever, whatever the power meter is, just make a note of it. And that would make sense. I actually was looking at Strava today from a session that I did with, and I've, you know, I've lived in the Dandenongs for 37 years. So I've done this particular climb I don't know how many times but I was looking at it what I'd done six years ago just to try and see if I'm actually improving or not and and this is an example of how the power meter has changed from what I rode six years ago and so the time was something like uh, 23 minutes and my power was 245 watts and six years ago I rode I looked for a time that was similar 23 minutes it was almost I'm trying to find, you know, there's a lot of sessions I've done. So I found one and it, it read 265 watts with my old power meter. So, mm-hmm. so sure, my weight could have been different, but I'm actually heavier now than I was then. So the number today should have been higher than the one six years ago when I was lighter. Yep. But in fact, for the same time, six years ago, power meter was 20 watts higher than today. And yep. that's a great example of what you just said. Yeah, yeah, and uh, as as always, we go well. You could have ridden the actual hill differently, and um, that would create different power as well. So there's many factors, but that's why we have to look at it, and that's why we keep track of as much data as possible. Last one on the power is just making sure you're calibrating before every session, um, and that's hard on race day um, because there are plenty of examples where uh, on race day, especially in triathlons, you have to rack your bike well before you get to start or before you're actually going to jump on the bike. So that can be a bit frustrating, and it does happen where you calibrate it, but it means nothing because the time, by the time you get back. Um, the power ranger is not calibrated again but that's where you have to be aware of your own numbers your own speed um, your own rpe um, which is really tough and compare it all not just be blindly looking at power yeah and you know i suppose there are exceptions with races where you don't have any control over it but in training you have control over calibrating your power meter and look if you're if you're that lazy and you can't spend 20 seconds calibrating your power meter every single time you ride your bike you know well, I think there's, uh, there's, you need to re- rethink about your um, your time management because it is so important. Um, there's so many sessions where I've actually forgotten to do it. Um, yeah. And, and I felt like, gee, this feels really hard on the trainer here. And then I've stopped and recalibrated and all of a sudden now it's really comfortable. It's because the power meter was 5 or 6% out. So you just need to do that every session. And most power meters will give you a number uh, when you calibrate. Mm-hmm. Um, some power meters don't. They just they just say calibration successful. But whatever the uh, the response is, you need to make sure that that happens every time. So, you know, the example I've got, I've got three different power meters in the house and they've all got different numbers that spit back at me. I've just got to remember what they are for what bike. So, so you know, there's a little bit of uh, information that you need to be across for that as well. And if, if you can't remember that number, because sometimes it's really random, it's like 487 or something, I'll, I'll even just calibrate it two or three times just to be really pedantic and really sure that okay it's spitting out this same number every time I'm, I'm happy with that um let's move into the topic because um that's what everyone's here for they want to know that if, if you've got limited time how do you structure a training program around that so as always the first answer is it depends but take us through the scenarios of of how you would answer this question depending on the athlete if i try to break it down i suppose um into what are your actual goals for 
the time you have available. And, and we're talking anything under 10 hours here. And it could be, look, minimum could be for a marathon runner, three or four hours of training a week. Um, and for a triathlete, eight or nine. Um, for a cyclist, six or seven. So anything in those ranges for those particular disciplines. So what are your goals? Uh, and that will answer a lot of the questions that we're going to talk about. So so I'm going to break it into three. One is your goal is to just not lose fitness over this period of time uh, because you're so time limited. You you are just happy to train and, and not expect to improve because you know you're not training like you used to in terms of time, um, but you want to maintain fitness. You don't want to go backwards. So that's the first category. The second category would be you're limited in time because of whatever the reason, job changes or family or, um, and you want to still improve, but you don't have much time. I want to talk about that. Um, and then what about the third category? The person who, regardless of the time available, wants to be super competitive and, and just be like his competitors and be good enough with half the time that the other competitors are using. So they're the three scenarios. They're the three goals I want to kind of discuss. Yeah, yeah. So go through. So if, you know, if it's level one, two or three, maintenance improvement or ultra competitive, what is, what's kind of the general rule around them? Yep. So the maintenance one's really simple. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to flog yourself. You can maintain a good level of aerobic fitness if you just stayed around zone two um, till, the cow, till the cows come home, as they say. So we, we, we're just happy with um, pressure on the pedals, um, getting, getting some aerobic uh, stimulation, uh, cardiac uh, uh, heart rate, uh, cardiovascular systems not being stressed too much, but it's, it's actually working. Um, so you couldn't spend all the time just in zone one. You would need to spend some time with pressure on the pedals, going right up to the top of 75% of your FTP. Um, and, you know, that will allow you to go the whole time. So if you're a, a bike rider and you've got six or seven hours available and you, you are not worried about improvement, but you could you could do all those as, you know, zone two rides and, and you know, really enjoy it, and and be able to ride with a whole lot of social rides, um, in in there, and and that would be a really good outcome because, because normally you would probably ride just above zone two uh, in those bunch rides, um, depending on the standard of your bunch ride. But, but you then have the the freedom to you know just to 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 know that you know I'm still maintaining my fitness because I am actually riding at that zone two level, which is, you know, technically you know if you use the zone system, a lot of the a lot of the best scientific research tells us that if you spend 80% of your time zone two or lower and 20% of your time, um, you know, at zone three or four um, or higher, you are going to improve incredibly. So we're just taking away that high intensity just so that you can actually get through uh, this period uh, of maintenance training. And the key point there is that you can train harder if you want, but you just don't need to. And a lot of people feel like they they will lose fitness unless they train hard. And you're saying that, no, if you just did zone two, you, you'll be pretty good. Obviously, you won't improve and you won't be at that ultra competitive side, but you'll be pretty good at maintaining. Yeah. And there'll be a point if you did that for a long, long period of time where, you know, your fitness would start to, to lose. And that's yep. why the intensity is important um, yep. at some point in time. And I suppose yep. that's what point two is. Yep. Um, the goal of... I want to stay healthy and fit, but I still want to see some improvement. And that's us just adding one more session. That's us. That's just adding an intensity session once a week or once every fortnight, whatever your schedule is, once every 10 days. Um, and that, that high intensity session needs to be 
at threshold or higher. Um, you don't want to spend that time in that gray zone, which is between zone two and zone four. Um, that, that gray zone is for people who can spend 15 to 20 hours a week training. Um, to clarify there, where when you say, when you say zone one, two, three, four, or five, uh, we're using a five zone model in this example. And we know that every podcast or every video might use a three zone model or a five or six zone model. But um, zone two is anything below that first lactate threshold. Um, above threshold is that you know, zone above zone four is above that lactate two threshold. So the gray zone you're talking about is between the lactate thresholds, um, LT1 and LT2. That's, that's zone three and four. So Yeah. So we want to spend some time up to zone two, LT1, lactate mm -hmm. threshold one, um, uh, anything in that area. And then we want to spend that other session uh, at threshold or VO2 or anaerobic. Um, so at, that could look like uh, 60 30s, you know, anything under a minute with short recovery, 40 20s, 30 15s, 30 on, 15 off. It could three by, you know, three minutes times two sets with three minutes recovery. That's an example of that high intensity session. And if you're doing things that are less intense than that at threshold, that's where you're doing your five by fives at, at you know, 100 to 108% of your FTP with, you know, two and a half minutes. Um, rest period in between. So they're, they're two examples of different sessions that are high intensity, but they're, they're challenging different um, aerobic systems. So, so it's really important that uh, as long as you're doing one or two of those sessions, um, uh, alternating is fine. Um, concentrating on one of those for a structured period and then swapping over is fine. But doing one of those is important to give you the stimulus so that, um, that, that you're looking forward to improve. And so if we break that down into actual sessions, let's say we're talking about a cyclist, they've got six to seven hours a week to train, you know, that might look like you know, two zone two sessions that could be between 60 and 90 minutes each, um, one high intensity session, which is generally around the hour mark or just above, and that leaves room for an endurance ride of, of potentially three to four hours to fit in there. And it all depends on who you are and when, you, when you've got six to seven hours, is that based over three days only? You know, you've only got three days to train, in that case, you like you're saying, you're probably doing one zone two, one endurance ride, which might still be zone two or with some intensity and um, one intensity ride, or you might be able to split it over four sessions like the example I just gave. So it is dependent, but we're just giving a breakdown of, of what those sessions might look like. Yeah, that's a good summary. And, you know, it de depends on how many days you can train. And mm. uh, if you've got five days and you've only got five hours, then, uh, you know, that takes away your endurance ride straight away. So that's a scenario that's really going to make it difficult um, and therefore you know you've got to try and make sure that most of those five hours four of those five hours are all at zone two um, so that's a good example um, let's see if you've got five days of train but you can only train for an for um, an hour max a day or, or an hour and a half just for, you know you might have a full day of, of sport with kids or something over the weekend Saturday Sunday and you just you just can never fit in a three or four hour ride during your week that's just not possible um, ultimately you know if you if you could, that would be preferable, you know, getting an endurance session in, whether it's cycling, running, you know, as part of triathlon as well. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a good specific example that just no matter what your week is, you're never going to be able to get away from the family for, for three to four hours at once. It's just too unfair. So yeah, talk to us a little bit more about that and, and how would you break down the week then? Yeah, and that's where the intensity is going to give you the best bang for your buck. So we're trying to do some zone two stuff. We, we're not going to spend time recovering because the rest of the 23 hours out of the 24 that you've 
you're not training, you know, you are, you know, doing some sort of recovery in that in that period. So we want to make sure that we really push ourselves in, you know, possibly two or three of those hours out of the five that you've got, if that's what your limit is, or six hours. So if it's three one-hour efforts where, you know, you're spreading that apart Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, you would want to be doing threshold or above in all of the three of those sessions. And an example would be to do two structured sessions and try to get, if you're, if you're training indoor, try to get a, a race on Zwift, something like that, where it's unpredictable um, uh, training where, you know, you're in the middle of a race and someone attacks and there was a hill comes up and you've got to, you know, you've got to get with the bunch and stay with them. So you've got to ride the high power. So they're really great ways of, of fitting in um, some high intensity with some fun. Um, but, you know, you really want to make sure the other two days you are actually getting the correct stimulus, which is uh, VO2 up to anaerobic or the threshold. Uh, and and they're the things you can't really avoid if you've only got that small amount of time. Yeah, I want to continue on that in a second. But the last kind of example we wanted to talk about was the ultra-competitive athlete, the one who still has a very limited time to train but um, still wants to be competitive. Is that a similar kind of answer? It is, but we would... We would have to say to that person, if you don't have the time for the endurance ride, then you're not going to be competitive. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be a, a thing that they would have to really take on board. Mm-hmm. Um, so that example we use where a person only had, and that would be very rare, by the way, if someone only yes. had one hour every time. But we're trying to give enough scenarios so it can fit the, the listener who's listening, or that, that suits me, and or this doesn't suit me. But if you've got, you know, three one-hour sessions available, but you've got the weekend, you can ride three or four hours, that ultra-competitive person will have a really good program. Um, and they can be really quite competitive if they're they're really using their endurance ride the way that they need to compared to someone who's got 20 hours a week Um, the endurance ride for that person the ultra competitive person with limited time that endurance ride or for a marathon runner that endurance run that has to have some intensity in it and for a runner you would use the hills and you would just you would just increase the the effort on the hills a little bit more than than if you had you know 10 12 hours of running each week um, when you've only got three or four hours of running, you would actually try to run some of the hills a little bit more solid. Um, and for a bike rider, you would absolutely try to, you know, get some bunch rides where it's really hard and it's unpredictable and you're racing against your mates. And then you would add zone two stuff in your cool down so that you're getting that aerobic fitness when you're tired after two, three, four hours. Um, as I was speaking to someone before, you know, should, he's asking, should I, should I do longer midweek rides coming up for this big event that I'm doing? And I'm saying, well, you should be doing that anyway if you've got the time. If you've got the time, add more time to you. We've said that so many times. Add more time to your cool down and make sure that doesn't go over zone two, which is, you know, um, anything up to 75%. But, you know, 60% of your FTP is where you should be sitting on that cool down, um, you know, down, down to as low as 40%. So anything between that 40 to 75, but try and hone in on 60%. Uh, to get the best bang for your buck if you're limited for time. And and you, the listener needs to understand we're only talking about people who have got less hours in the day, mm-hmm. in the week, in the month to train to. We're not talking about people who've got all the time in the world to fit the best structured program into them into their week. Um, so it is important that, you know, you use that endurance ride. That is the difference, George, uh, making sure that we get the value out of that endurance ride. Because in the others, you know, in the maintenance person or the improvement uh, plus just trying to maintain, there's potentially going to do some intensity but you know they're not got the time to do the long endurance stuff and and you know if if you're 
spending a, you know, another example I, I just thought of then if you're actually spending time driving to to uh to an um let's start again so if you're if you're actually riding your bike uh, going through traffic to get to the endurance ride where there's some uh, hills um you're actually commuting rather than actually training mm-hmm. uh, and, and i would rather you did drive to the hills and then spent the three or four hours that you've got in the hills rather mm-hmm. than commuting and spending an hour in the hills and then commuting back and getting a total of three or four hours. Yep, yep. Um, that is going to be the best bang for your buck. So you need to need to be up at four o'clock in the morning, be ready to ride on your bike in summer at 6am so that you have to be home by 10. You've got three hours from six till nine, a commute back home t- 10 o'clock. You know, your day's done and you've had three great hours in the hills and you haven't mm-hmm. spent the whole time stopping and starting at traffic lights all the way out there and getting one hill in and then doing the same on the way home. Yeah, yeah, that's great. There's one particular travel outfit I can think of that um, is constantly really strapped for time and they, they somehow manage to um, just maintain a really good level of fitness and then when, when they have periods where they've got a little bit more time, they can really step up and they smash it and uh, they really do prioritize the, the endurance ride as much as they can, which is um, not all the time, but when they can, they do it. And if not, they're, they're basically just getting on the bike and smashing themselves um, for short trap periods. And we've spoken about um, our winters with series where we hold uh, races within the Travelo group. And, and this athlete would literally get home from work so late that they jump on the bike five minutes before the race, whereas everyone else is, is getting the most out of the session where they're doing the extras, they're doing a great half hour warm up. It's building a good aerobic capacity, getting themselves really warmed up for the race. And this athlete would just get on, do the 35 minute race as hard as they can, get off, finish the day's work after that. And they are literally using every minute they have uh, just to do the high intensity part, but they're getting a huge benefit out of it. Obviously, if they did half hour warm up and a half hour cool down, it was an hour and a half session. They're going to get great aerobic benefit out of that, but they still are able to maintain really good fitness and be riding really well just from doing something like that and getting the actual hard race in. And look, I know every athlete's different, but the amount of uh, limited time this person has proved, it has proved to me that, you know, with, with small, well-balanced, structured training sessions, you can still be at a level that's super competitive. And, you know, this guy was part of the Nationals winning team's time trial at Buninyong in the Australian titles here in January. And, you know, I reckon his previous, you know, two or three weeks before that, he might have ridden his bike twice or three times. <laughs> Yet he was, you know, he was able to, because when he did ride his bike, he rode, you know, max max efforts in his sessions. Mm. He, he maintained that, that uh, good structure. And look... That will fall apart. There's no doubt about that. When when that goes on for two or three months, you will lose fitness. You mm-hmm. will you will not be the rider you are. So we're not talking about that. We're just talking about the the you know the opportunities you have with the limited time um, for a period of time. But if you try to do this, you know, for two or three years, you, you would you would not be an improvement. Uh, situation you'll you will just be almost like a bipolar rider you'll have good periods and bad periods and you just keep doing that up and down um oh geez i'm feeling good now and i haven't trained for a while and now i'm struggling again and i'll do a couple of good weeks of training now i'm going good again and you're not, never actually getting any better and and so we're not talking about that athlete we're talking about someone who is actually doing exactly what they should be doing in the limited time they have and and answering that question can you still be at the top of your game well you can it is a lot a lot harder uh, pathway to follow but it is possible if you're really committed and you are on top of the details and and you don't waste a session that is actually mm-hmm. the key thing 
We actually had the founder of the 80-20 rule and where all this, this dialogue comes from around, you know, you should be doing 80% of your training easy and then um, only a small section hard. That was Dr. Stephen Siler. And we asked him this question and said, well, yeah, if you... What if you've got limited sessions? What if you can only train three times a week? And he said, well, it's super simple. You go really hard on those sessions. And he said, the caveat is as long as you're giving yourself enough time to recover because you can't just smash yourself all the time. But he said, if, if I can only train three times a week, then for sure, I'm doing three high-intensity sessions. That's going to give me the best bang for my buck. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of almost shocking to hear a scientist say, you know, it's okay to, to go and smash yourself. But, you know, the reality is it's three times out of seven days um, and you've got, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, probably opportunities to do that or Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. Um, and, you know, you've got ample recovery time in there. So, you know, you would be doing yourself an injustice if you actually didn't use those sessions, if, you, your, if your goal, remember, is to, to be competitive. Once again, that's not going to work long term, though. So when someone says, "Oh, I'll just, I'll just smash it for a period," you'd go, "Oh, that's even still not a good idea." Even if you've only got three sessions, why is that? Yeah, because eventually, you know, the endurance component of the training is what is our 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 base, and and if we keep, and I'm really strong on this with the people we coach. If people are missing out of the last eight or 10 weeks, and I see they've done five out of the 10 endurance day sessions, the correlation between their form falling and those sessions is massive. And so that tells me every time that, you know, if you start missing the endurance, then eventually your form and your fitness will start to dissipate very quickly. And and all of a sudden you'll be asking yourself, well, why, why aren't I riding like I was uh, 12 weeks ago? Well, the, the key component that's gone is the you know, the endurance ride. And that, that just brings that, that strength in the mitochondria to be able to hold form when you're getting tired and, and the cell development and the breakdown of you know, the fatigue you get from four or five hour rides or three or three, three hours and above if you're doing some strength work. And, uh, you know, that is incredible for the body to, to really maintain its, its peak form. And, um, and I think that is going to be a game changer. Even if you do still do the intensity stuff midweek, um, you know, there'll be a time where, you know, I've seen the example of uh, when summer comes around, no matter where you are in the world, um, there's a lot more opportunities to race. So, so the people who, and we've got examples of people who like to race two or three times a week, which I'm not a big fan of, but that's what they love doing. So let's let them do what they love doing. But I have to say to them, if you choose this method of summer uh, riding, the consequence is that you'll form eventually by the third month of summer, you know, summer's generally going to go for, you know, with, with a, bit of, a bit of good weather in spring and a bit of good weather in autumn, you could have a four to five month period of really great racing. But by the time you get to month three and four, if you haven't done any endurance and all you've done is race Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday with no endurance, your form will actually deteriorate and you will be a lot worse rider at the end of summer as compared to the person who races less and actually gets the endurance ride in. They're still getting the intensity from the race. They're still getting their their dopamine fix from uh, from having a uh, you know, yeah. a, a comp- competition uh, in their blood, um, but they're still maintaining their fitness, and they can do that for six months of, of the of the period that we're talking about, and and be you know actually better at the end of the season because they've had the right uh, fitness levels all the way through, and they haven't dropped off. Yeah, it's such a great point and it really reiterates what you said earlier about how valuable that endurance session is. And if you can't fit that in, you've just got to expect that you're probably not going to improve the way you want and be competitive in the way you want. And just that example we gave before of that athlete that 
you know, is doing the absolute minimum but maintaining a, a good level, that's because that athlete is only ever doing you know, short time trial races where they're doing 15 to 30 minute efforts and they can they can maintain that or they're doing hour crit races. You know, they're not doing anything longer. And if they did, they would struggle because they're just not doing any of that endurance. And um, so they're really good at that specific kind of tempo because they can keep that up in their training. But it highlights a really big point that if you're an endurance athlete, if you're a triathlete, this isn't going to pl- apply as well um, because you just won't be good for anything over an hour, an hour and a half because you're not doing any specificity for it. Yeah, and you know, as a as a competitive marathon runner, you know the example would be the same. You know, if you're trying to train for a marathon or an ultra distance run, which is longer than a marathon, you know, fifty, sixty kilometers, or some people up to a hundred kilometers. Um, if if you can't get that endurance uh, run into your body, you're not. You shouldn't be targeting those events you know you, you will be fine if if as a marathon as a runner and you and you can't have the time for it you have to think twice about what events you should be doing and so if that you're in that scenario where you can't do that endurance run then marathon should be stepping down to half marathon that would be my advice and you'll have some some similar fun experiences doing 5k's and 10k's and, and making your main race the half marathon rather than you know blindly saying i'm an endurance marathon runner and that's what i'm going to do but i've only got you know x amount of time and my longest run i can do is 90 minutes well you're, you're going to have a bad experience on marathon day if your longest run is going to be 90 minutes you need to have some capacity and that's what the topic is you know if you've got limited time then you need to think about a what is my goal is it you know maintenance is it just get a little bit of improvement or ultra competitive and if you if you're a marathon runner and you don't have the endurance day available to you you shouldn't be doing that event so let's finish off with uh what would the breakdown be for a triathlete let's say a triathlete only has six or seven maybe up to eight or nine but let's go really specific with they've got absolutely limited time per week how do you break it down between the three disciplines yeah well, i suppose the simplest way is to say how much time is spent in the race and that should be reflective of what you do in swim bike and run and and to be fair people have got 20 hours it's still the same scenario i i still apply that philosophy of you know if i if i spend uh, over time swimming under time riding and under time running i'm going to be improving my swimming incredibly but that could improve me two or three minutes. Whereas if I spent more time riding and running, I could possibly get up to five or 10 minutes improvement. So it's where you're going to get the best bang for your buck. So unfortunately, swimming becomes a maintenance thing if you're limited in time. And and I don't mean as in the effort, it just means once a week. If, if you're struggling to do seven hours of training, you're going to have to spend two or three hours depending on your event whether it's 70.3 or or Ironman and again the same philosophy probably not a good idea to do an Ironman if you've only got seven hours of 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 training time available Mm -hmm. Uh, half Ironman is really pushing it Olympic distance is probably where you should be you know selecting so I'm really pushing that idea of think about you know with the time you've got available what should I be doing and you know if you know if you know you've been an endurance athlete and that's what your passion and desire is look use this time it, you know where you've got limited time to 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 do a different event which is shorter and you, you know you might surprise yourself and enjoy that as just as much but if you can't do that endurance run and ride as a triathlete then you're going to be limited in how well you're going to perform on race day because you're going to be exposed um you know after 
you know, if you're doing a half Ironman and you, you've swum, you know, basically 2K and tried to ride 90 and run half half a marathon, if you haven't done any riding or running that's in that seven hours, that's, that's you know, been somewhere around the time it's going to take you to ride that that 90K. And for, for some athletes, that's three hours. For other athletes, that's two and a half. And for the run, it could be an hour and a half and two and a half hours for the half marathon. So, so you've got to have that time in your training program. So where does, what does that leave you if you've done, say you've done some long runs that are two hours and you've done some rides that are three hours, there's five out of your seven or eight hours that you've got available. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, those other three or four hours have to be a little bit of a swim and, you know, some sort of running and some sort of riding in those other three hours. So, so you know, that's where you shouldn't be doing the two to three hour ride and the the hour and a half to two hour run you should select another another event in triathlon another distance as an olympic distance and you'd be having more fun that way as well and the 80 20 rule can really again be thrown out here if you go into let's say you opt for the olympic distance at at this amount of training then you could really just get quite specific and just do a lot of your training at race pace zone and you know if it's a 40k tt which might take you an hour to an hour and a half and if it's a 10k run which again might take you 40 minutes to an hour 10 you know you could potentially do an hour ride with a half hour run at race pace and do that consistently and you you get really specifically good at that race pace yeah so i think the, the scenario should be um i have to rethink my event and then i can fit my time into it so so the caveat would be yes you can still be competitive but not in as an endurance athlete um anything that's you know as a as a runner you know 5k 10k up to half marathon with with limited time as a triathlete absolutely you know sprint uh, olympic no problems pushing the envelope depending on how many hours you've got for half half ironman i guess that kind of summarizes it um yeah any other final words on on fitting you know structured training program on limited time no i just think you've got to be really more realistic in in your expectations and and make sure that you select the goal um about how you want to uh, go about your fitness. Are you going to maintain? Are you happy to maintain with a little bit of improvement or are you super competitive? And once you've established that, then select the event that is going to allow you to uh, fulfill that goal that you're, you're really setting as your target during this period where you've got limited time. And the whole scenario of this podcast was to set up an expectation that you can still uh, be an athlete. You can still be competitive. You can still... Uh, uh, compete in events but as long as you're realistic about your performance and um, have that correlation between training time expectation and an outcome that's a great way to finish uh yeah we hope this helps anyone out there with limited time and um, because there's definitely a lot of people in that position and um, we want to give you hope that yeah, it's definitely still possible and you can definitely get a lot out of yourself um you don't have to be doing so many extra hours at zone two and there is actually a little bit of a myth i think in the industry about how many hours you should be doing and I even saw one pro um, cyclist talk about how they can't remember the last time they did a 30 plus hour week, even though it seems to be a well-known thing that all elite athletes do 30 plus hours. Um, And we've spoken a lot on the podcast about elite cyclists, you know, they're doing their two key races and then everything around that is just super easy and and not even that long. So um, yeah, don't fall into a trap thinking that more is always better and you can get a lot out of your week with shorter time. So we want to look at both sides of the argument. We hope we've provided that today. So that's it for this episode. As always, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.